Matthew 6, 1 to 15. I don't think you've got them on your sheets there, so you can follow along. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. <laughs> Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, this morning we're continuing on with our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And these, these are all Jesus' words. And I think that Jesus' words are always aimed smack bang in the middle of our hearts. If you are not confronted or comforted, or if you don't have some kind of feeling when you hear Jesus talk, I, would, I, I wouldn't want to assume too much, but I'd hazard a guess that you're not actually listening to him. He's always aiming smack bang in the middle of our hearts when he speaks. But he's also very concerned with what we're up to. He's also extremely concerned about what, he, what we do, and he's not really willing to separate our heart attitude and what we do, and a lot of what a lot of what we've been talking about this uh, this series with the Sermon on the Mount has been how do we kind of put these two things together? How do we have a righteous heart before God, and then go out and live righteously as well? Well, if you mix these two things up, your heart and your hands, you'd end up with a very religious word. And that word is devotion. See, devotion is the joining of our hearts and our heads, or of our hearts and our hands. It's the whole body in service of something that we love, of something that we're devoted to. And often, I think about how other people think about devotion out there. 
or in here. When we think of devotion in our relationships, we can get quite mixed up about what the source of our devotion actually is and how we show our devotion. Olivia Newton-John doesn't quite get it when she says that my head is saying full, forgetting. My heart is saying, don't let go, hold on to the end. That's what I intend to do. I'm hopelessly devoted to you. See, our devotion is not just our hearts. It needs to be married with our heads and our hands. I think Paul Simon gets a little bit closer when he sings, I'll take your part when darkness comes and pain is all around. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. That's a joining of our hearts and our hands. See, there's something selfless about the act of devotion that we wouldn't just act out of self-interest, that it instead would discipline ourselves and be devoted even at the cost of ourselves. And this is what Jesus talks about. He talks about devotion when he talks in verse 1 about practicing your righteousness. This is the same righteousness that we've been banging on for about a month now, and that we'll continue to bang on about as we go through the Sermon of the Mount. This is a rightness in being and doing. And this rightness is given to us by God, and it's enjoyed by us who lay ourselves aside and instead seek God. But Jesus talks about this, um, and instead of saying why certain things, like we heard, like giving to the poor and prayer, why these certain things are acts of devotion, instead, he reveals the kingdom by exposing false devotion. I think Jesus assumes that as the people of God, we are going to be giving to the needy. As people of God, we are going to be praying. And so he reveals the kingdom by exposing false devotion. See, this false devotion ran and still runs rampant in the human heart. It's not a Jewish religious leader gene trait. Instead, Jesus speaks to the danger of doing before we understand God's blessing of actually being. So that's what I hope we can all hear this morning. Jesus' words, a warning about the danger of doing righteous works before we know God's blessing of actually being righteous before him. So let's get into it. What is so dangerous about doing good things? Well, in verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And it seems a bit strange because didn't he also just say in chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. What are we supposed to do with the light? Does it go under the bushel or not? What are we supposed to do? How do these two sentences make sense of each other? Well, luckily, Jesus doesn't stop there. Because at the end of both of these sentences, there's a reason why you'd be wary of practicing your righteousness or why you would let your light shine. Jesus calls for caution in practicing righteousness before others only in the case of wanting to be seen by them. He commands us all, he he lets us know that we're all salt and light if we're in the kingdom, so that others might see us, and then what will they do? They'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's kind of like being cool. Are you cool? Have you ever been called cool? 
I think cool is just such a strange word and a weird way of thinking about things because anybody who tries to be cool is immediately uncool. And yet some of the least cool people I know are actually the coolest people ever. All this to say Jesus is not so concerned with the work itself. He knows that it will happen. Jesus is very aware of the danger of doing righteous things to be seen by other people so that you might be called righteous, so that you might be called devoted, thinking of a modern uh, kind of turn of phrase, so that you might be called on fire for God. It's a danger of doing righteous works this way. And why is it a danger? Well, Jesus says it's not a true reflection of who you are. You're putting on a mask, literally. So we don't live in a world where we pray on street corners, or we don't live in a world where we give to the sound of trumpets, do we? I, I personally haven't done that. And we don't live in a world where doing those things would bring respect or praise. The context that Jesus was teaching in was one where it's called a theocracy, where God is the kind of prime minister, for lack of a better word. Everything was done under the banner of God and the temple and the legal system. Everything was tied up with who God was and how he wanted his people to be. So if you're praying on the street corner, people would see that as an admirable thing. Whereas these days, we have that divide between our state and our church. And so that is, that's not so kind of endearing for people, if that makes sense. But we can perhaps understand the two-faced nature of doing good deeds to be seen by others, can't we? I say two-faced because the word hypocrisy actually comes from the word in Greek, which describes an actor who would wear multiple masks during a play. Right? They would. Oh, they're supposed to be isolates. They would. There's only a couple of them on the stage at once, and women weren't allowed to act in those times. And so, if you wanted to be a different character, you'd have to put on a mask to let all of you know, all of the audience know, that this is a different person. They have different intentions, they speak differently, it's a totally different person. So, I'm Frank and now I'm someone else, and that makes me a hypocrite because I'm going between these two faces. And it's not that Jesus loved going to his local theatre, but that word is actually being used, hypocrite was being used at the time in the same way that we use it now. So hypocrisy in verse 2 is giving to the poor um, by blowing your own trumpet so that you might be served instead of serving those who you are giving to. If we jump to verse 5, we can see the hypocrisy when we pray. It looks like positioning ourselves so that we might be seen by others. And the temptation to be hypocritical in this sense is very real. Think of your own lives. What are the well-intentioned prayers that permeate your life? If you're a praying person, do you give a prayer before you eat? Is it a ritual or is it something else? Are you in a Christian context where prayer is just the way that you open and close meetings? I know I am. And perhaps I've saved the best or the worst for last right here in church. 
I know if, if you're familiar with the Acts way of praying, we have praise of adoration where we, where we thank God for who he is. We have confession where we admit that we don't measure up to what he has in store for us. We have thanksgiving, where we thank him for all his gifts in his life. We have supplication, where we ask him for the things that he has promised to provide for us. What about another T to go in there? What about a prayer of transition? A prayer that gets us from singing to sitting, from communion to the last song, from your seat to your car. See, the danger of being two-faced, of being hypocritical in that sense, affects all of us, no matter what motivations we have. And some of those motivations are very um, well-meaning, but misguided, and it affects us all. And so what's the danger? We're talking about the danger of doing things so that we might be seen by others. What's the danger of being hypocritical, of being two-faced, of not being ourselves when we're devoted to God? Well, the danger is that Jesus announces judgment. But this judgment looks really strange. When we think of judgment, I, I don't know how many of you just show up in your chairs. But when we mention judgment, we think of a very specific image of judgment. But God uses lots of different images of judgment to show the ways in which uh, we are removed from him. And so if we didn't have Jesus' words following on from this, we might be tempted to echo Psalm 73 when we approach God and we see people who are doing things for the wrong reason, but they are just flourishing, they get praise, we might be tempted to say, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pains until death. They're not pains at all until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, they're rich. They're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of us mere mortals. But what does Jesus say about these two-faced people? In verse 2 and in verse 5, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What is the reward? Well, it's all that God is able to give them. Praise from others. Public attention. Jesus teaches that God unfortunately, has nothing to offer the public hypocrite. What a tragedy. Imagine knowing the living God and yet being unable to receive all that he has to offer because you weren't willing to receive it. See, this is not just for those who are standing at the synagogues or at the street corners in Judea, but instead it is a judgment for all of us if we are two-faced. Do you remember two weeks ago, uh, when I preached um, on the second half of Matthew 5, Jesus also talked about judgment there, about being, being um, yeah, sorry, he talks about judgment. Uh, and he talked about what happens when we act outside our authority, and then he does the checks and balances. Our standing's going to be put back to where it was, as it was, as us being distant from God. Well, this description of judgment here is that if we try to do righteous works before we are righteous in God's sight, then he has nothing to offer us. That's the tragedy. That's, yeah, it's the tragedy of the situation. He withdraws the blessings that he gives to those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. 
and his judgment is that we have received all that we can. Praise from others and not eternal life here and forever in Jesus. So, how can we be moving from doing righteous works into being righteous? What needs to change in our lives to be truly ourselves, to, to take off the mask? Well, we find God. And I, I tell you what, if I was, I, I wouldn't want to be doing every sermon in this series, but if I would, um, I would be going back to the Beatitudes every single sermon, because I think this is where the Beatitudes come back in, how we find God. Because without them, finding God is a mammoth task. It's an impossible task. But Jesus teaches that those who are poor in spirit, who are pure and with an appetite for righteousness, will find the kingdom and see God. And Jesus teaches here that to seek the kingdom is to seek it in secret. He says in verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And in verse 6, when he's talking about prayer, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now by this, does Jesus mean that I can only give by direct debit? Can I, can I only pray by myself? I don't think that's the intent of this passage, but if you are actually trying to understand your intentions and your motivations behind these acts of devotion that you're doing for God, maybe it is a practical way to start knowing your true intentions. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about doing that. Um, I don't think that's his main focus either, but maybe it's a way for you, if you're um, wrestling with your intentions behind acts of devotion, maybe it's a practical way to start. I think what Jesus is saying about giving, I think giving is a cornerstone of a healthy and thriving community of faith, is that your giving needs to be in secret from yourself. There's nothing inherently wrong with a public gift, but it is the question of whether the act of giving is separated from your tendency towards pride, and towards status, are our devoted actions in line with a devoted heart? Or is there, is there cross-pollination? Is there cross-contamination with our own selfish ones? And similarly with prayer, are we going to have a separate prayer room with a door that will shut and that will be the only place that prayer is appropriate? No, I don't think so. Jesus, he prayed alone, but he also prayed with his disciples. Again, it's the question, when you're drawn to prayer, is this action of devotion before God in line with a devoted heart, or is there cross-contamination with your selfish ones, with my selfish ones? To put it another way, you're talking about um, the danger of doing. Am I trying to do before I get a chance to be before God? Am I trying to do things for God before I get a chance to be with him. And this is why I think it's important to take seriously this in secret that Jesus goes on about. Because Jesus tells us that the Father will reward us for what he sees in secret, in our hearts, in our beings. I did some reading, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I did some reading and I'm quite, I'm not sure 
I'm not sure about what I'm saying either. I'm not quite sure what the reward is when he says the Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think some commentators say it's practical. That would be, sorry, some commentators say there's an understanding that it would be practical. And others say that it's a spiritual reward. I think in one sense, it is always the knowledge of our Creator, being intimate with Him and having a relationship with Him. What a gift, what a reward to know God. And here I, w- I want to make tracks to get to the Lord's Prayer because I think the reason that Matthew makes room for Jesus teaching his disciples to pray is because prayer allows us to be in secret where our Father sees and rewards us. I do a lot of reading for Bible College. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, and I've been reading Karl Barth, who is a 20th century, turn of the 20th century, German theologian who was dealing with a lot of issues of how do we interpret the Bible during his day. A lot of kind of, well, we look at the world and the Bible should match up with that. That's kind of a framework called liberalism. Um, and But he said, no, what we have to do is put an emphasis on reading the Bible and understanding it within itself. And it, it does make sense of the world. We're regaining an orthodox position at the turn of the 20th century. So that's a little bit about Karl Barth. But this is what he said about prayer. It was going to be on the screen behind me. But what else is such a turning to God than the turning of prayer? For in prayer, a man or a human, speaking generally of humanity, in prayer, a man temporarily turns away from his own efforts. Every prayer has its beginning when a man puts himself, together with his best and most accomplished work, out of the picture. He leaves himself and his work behind in order once again to recollect that he stands before God. And standing before God as his people doesn't put us in the danger that trying to do things for God does. Because when we stand before God, we can't do anything. Instead, and this is what Jesus' prayer teaches us, standing before God reveals to us the blessing of being with him. So instead of the danger of doing, reveals the blessing of being. Prayer, like Bart said, is the way of turning to God putting everything else aside. I wonder if you can agree with that. Because Jesus confronts not only his own religion, but other faiths too. The prayers of the Gentiles, the Romans, to their gods were long and they were wordy. Look in verse 7. They heap up empty phrases and they think that they will be heard for their many words. The Gentiles' prayers were battering rams hoping that by sheer will they would knock down their heaven's doors and their gods would answer them. Instead, Jesus tells us that our Father knows everything that we need before we even say it. Our prayers are not formulas to achieve an outcome. They're not incantations. They are a way of devoting ourselves to being with God and knowing him. So that's why Jesus also says in verse 9, pray then like this. He doesn't say, pray this. 
He says, like this, his prayer that he teaches people to pray, uh, he teaches his disciples, he's teaching us right now, is a way to pray and not a prayer to be stuck with hard and fast. It's a, it's a great prayer, it's probably one of the best ones, but it's not the only one. And this prayer reveals the blessing of being with God. So I'm going to go and just go line by line and just outline some things that it teaches us about who God is and what he does for us, showing us the blessing of being with God. First of all, there's the blessing of being a child of God in our Father in heaven. I reckon it's fair to say whenever the Bible talks of fathers, that we all have different backgrounds that we bring to what it's like to have a father, but so does Jesus. Jesus' understanding of father would have been the ancient Near Eastern idea um, and the Roman idea as well, that fathers pass on not just their genetic traits, but their name, their estate, their occupation, their privileges and their people all to their children. Children were dependent on their father for every aspect of their um, identity in society. And yeah, Jesus speaks of addressing God as a father, in Hebrew, Aramaic, sorry, it's Abba, which um, you might have heard people say it translates kind of to daddy, uh, which I don't think is quite in our context, maybe not, maybe more like papa than daddy, but nevertheless, it's addressing God like we would our own father, one who's secure in a relationship with him. See, knowing God is our father is one thing, but it's also the blessing that comes with being child of God. Garth talked about last week about the reason that we know how to love our enemies and that we can is by the love of God. And us being children of God, see God showing kindness to both the wicked and to the good. We receive everything that God is because we are his dependents. And it's, it's probably worth saying he, we don't address him as our father who gets grumpy, our father who needs to be pandered to, our father who, he might try his best, but we still have to live with the mistakes that he's made. No, he's our father in heaven. He's over everything, and he's the author of the lives that we're meant to live. We're blessed to be the children of our father in heaven. So the next line, hallowed be your name. It's a blessing of being aware of God's holiness. You might have come across this word before, you might have not. You might have come across it, uh, you still don't know really what he's talking about. Hallowed means to be made holy, which still might really not help us because we think, what is holiness? We know that God is holy, but what does it look like? What does it mean for us? All right? And if God's name was to be made holy, to be hallowed, what is God's name? Is it just God, to twist a bit of Shakespeare, if you're into him, would God by any other name smell as sweet? To explain this, I think if I take you down memory lane through the Bible, I can think of two significant times where God's name was revealed amongst his actions in history. If we look at the Exodus account, in Exodus 3.14, Moses has run away um, from his life as a prince in Egypt, um, and he's been called to come back as the leader of the Israelites, and he meets God in Exodus 3.14, uh, 
at a burning bush. And God tells him to go to the Israelites in Egypt and tell them that they are going to be set free. And Moses is unsure. He needs a name from God. Who, is, who am I going to tell them has sent me? And then the other point in history is John 8.58, where Jesus tells the religious authorities who he really is. And what is that name in both cases? I am. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's the name. It's the personal name of God. And this name is also special because it's revealed before two great acts of liberation, of freedom by God for his people. The Exodus as Israel was delivered from Egypt and the gospel story as we are delivered from the power of sin and death. In both moves of God, he displays his name and makes it holy by setting his people apart from the chains that hold him. See, being made holy is being set apart and only God can do that. So we're blessed when we come before God and we're made aware of his holiness that we can call him Father and still know that he has done such a powerful and lasting work that we're delivered from sin and death by the work of Jesus. And this is a prayer to keep seeing God's name as holy as he continues to make it holy in history. So that's hallowed be your name. And then we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're blessed to be witnesses to the kingdom. We've talked a lot about the kingdom in the last couple of weeks. That's kind of what you get for being in Matthew. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, I th- I, I'd hopefully understand that he's not teaching us to pray for an empire to come or even for God's nation to rise up. Jesus actually proclaimed that the kingdom had come when he was on earth, when he was performing miracles, when he was preaching and teaching. And we get a little bit more insight into what the kingdom is when John the Baptist, who was Jesus' frontrunner, asks him about what the kingdom is, or should he be waiting for someone else? Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 5, about what happens in the kingdom. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. We're blessed to be witnesses to the kingdom. But if we were to look around at our lives, the question might arise, is the kingdom actually here or not? It might be hard in your lives amongst the the suffering and the just things that don't work, the broken things, the broken relationships, it might be hard to see the kingdom having been come. Perhaps it's hard to wrap your head around when the kingdom is as well as what the kingdom is. But when we pray your kingdom come, we are witnessing to the kingdom, as biblical scholar G.E. Ladd puts it, we're witnessing to the kingdom being now and not yet. We know that it has come near in Jesus. And the life that's offered in the kingdom has changed all of our lives to some point. I don't think we'd be in this room if it hadn't. But when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, we're acknowledging a disconnect too. We see that the kingdom has come, but it hasn't arrived in its fullness. Like like the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but as Paul says, everything in it suffers and groans and doesn't quite line up with what Jesus proclaimed the kingdom will be 
when it comes in all its fullness. So this blessing of the blessing of this prayer is how big it is. When we say your kingdom come, we say it because we caught a glimpse of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. When we say your will be done, we ask because there is so much in this world that doesn't line up with God's will. And when we say on earth as it is in heaven, we say in your time, God, bring heaven to earth. And maybe in our time, we might be the ones to see it. What a big prayer. What a big thing to be witness to. The coming of heaven to earth. Well, if these first three lines are about who God is, then the next three are how we relate to him. And how he relates to us. And we're blessed to be cared for. He has his eye on us. Just like Israel wandering in the desert, receiving their daily manna, their daily bread, God wants to hear us asking him to supply all our needs. When we say, give us today our daily bread, I think this is where it's interesting to notice that the whole prayer is not written as though it was one person praying. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us. This is a corporate way of praying. This is a prayer that's meant to be prayed together. So when we ask, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking for God to meet our needs, but we're also asking with our brothers and sisters standing side beside us. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. We're blessed to be cared for, but we're also stewards, caretakers of the grace and the blessings that God has poured out on us. So we're blessed that God cares for us, but could we do out of this being blessed to the point where we realise that my daily bread might also be my neighbour's? It is the daily bread for all of us, just as it was for Israel when they wandered in the wilderness. And we are all blessed when we are cared for by God's provision. So we're, we're also blessed when we know that we are forgiven and that we also know that we are forgiving. This is a trickier line because um, it raises the question of, does God only forgive me if I forgive other people, forgive us our debts as we forgive them? as we forgive our debtors. And the answer, I've come up with one, you'll be glad to know is, uh, I'm just not really sure. Um, I think this also locks in with verse 14 and 15 as well, um, as they speak of transgressions. Um, I think this is a similar thing. Um, putting transgressions, sins, and debts together was a way of understanding our shortcomings before God and before other people. Um, I, was, I was doing some recording with a friend on Friday and his throwaway line, I'd do, do a track playing some violin, I'd do a track and his throwaway line was, if he was asking if it was alright, he would say, any sins in that take? <laughs> um, so we still kind of use it today. Um, but it's a well understood way, as it was in Jesus' time, of talking about our standing before God. I think um, when God, when we're offered that forgiveness, the passion, which is a song by Hillsong, explains it well. In the chorus, the song says, Our chains are gone, our debt is paid. The cross has overthrown the grave, 
For Jesus' blood that sets us free, that pays our debt, means death to death and life for me. This is the hope of forgiveness that we have in Jesus, that our chains are gone, whatever is binding us to sin and death. God has set us apart from sin and death by the sacrifice of his son in our place, his son Jesus, on the cross to pay our debt in our place. To pay our debt in our place. Sorry, this is a powerful moment as well. And Jesus' death puts death away. And from his resurrection springs an assurance of eternal life, eternal forgiveness for all who believe in him. This is the hope that forgiveness brings. But does Jesus only forgive us when we forgive others? Surely the blessing of this prayer is knowing that we're forgiven. So why would he make me doubt it? I think to explain this, I'm going to tell a story that Jesus told in Matthew 18 of a slave who owed a crushing debt to a king, an impossible debt, a ridiculous debt. And the king, knowing that he'd never be able to pay it off, he brought it in front of him and said, look, can we do a payment plan? He wasn't able to even do that. He forgave this enormous debt because he had pity on him. Now this slave having been totally released from this crushing debt, he'd gotten off scot-free from an impossible debt, then went and shook down his mate for not paying a small debt. It's, it's like the price of a meal out or something like that. When his mate with a small debt couldn't pay, the slave threw his mate into prison until he could. I think it would be hard to pay a debt back from behind bars. Now the king, who got wind of this, was very angry because the same grace that he had shown the slave had not been shown from the slave to his mate for even an insignificant amount. So he threw the first slave with the crushing debt into prison until he could pay it. And the implication is that he couldn't. Jesus has stern words for those who cannot forgive in the way in which they have been forgiven. Because it reveals of what we understand of God's forgiveness, doesn't it? If we can't forgive, then how much do we actually understand of the way that God has forgiven us, that he has paid our debt, that he's released us from our chains? It might not be much. And if that's us today, if you're struggling with forgiveness, could, yeah, it's all I can say, but could we lean on God and reach out to forgive? Because we might experience that God's grace reaches out to us too. And finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think this, is, this seems a bit strange. We, we, if you've grown up a Christian or if you've been praying the Lord's Prayer for a long time, it kind of rolls off your tongue. But if you were to think about it, lead us not into temptation, God should never be leading us into temptation. Anyway, what does, what does this mean? I was reading John Carson, and he writes in the commentary that it does seem odd for us to pray that our Father in heaven, who loves us and protects us, wouldn't lead us into temptation. Uh, John Carson thinks it's what's called a litotes, which is a technical term for a turn of phrase which is a negative, but it actually emphasises the opposite. So, you can shout out if you want, what is it if it's not cold outside? 
Hot, very hot, right? Very hot. Um, what is someone if they're not wrong? Right, very right. So when we say, lead us not into temptation, what Carson is saying, that we actually depend on God to lead us in righteousness, to go, if temptation's this way, to go totally the opposite way. That, that idea of an expulsive power of a new affection. We depend on God to lead us in righteousness by the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus and the good works that he's prepared us to do. So, so we say, lead on God, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil by sending us the righteous way. Well, what does that look practically? Well, I think it looks like what Jesus assumes that we'll all be doing anyway. We're giving to those who are needy. We are praying next week, fasting. Who's preaching next week? You are. Great. These are the marks of our devotion to God. But they're not the whole story. The whole story is Jesus' work in our lives and God's work in bringing his plan to fulfilment. See, to be devoted in secret is knowing that you're hidden away with God, that Jesus is at work in your life. And in a sense, that means that nothing can touch you, um, whether publicly or privately. Paul writes to the Colossians church, the church in Colossae, um, and he offers this encouragement. For you have died, death to death, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That sounds a lot like what is done in secret will be rewarded in secret. So practically, um, you're doing it in secret, so I can't really tell you what to do. Can I encourage us just to start in secret? I, I, and even maybe just with this prayer, maybe you like to pray this prayer your own way, using it as the scaffold, as the template that it is. And I don't think in secret, it has to be by yourself. Maybe you, you'd like to um, use it as a devotional time with a friend or a small group. But start in secret, start inside. We may not see what that looks like for one another, but I have a hunch that starting from being with God and not starting for doing things for God bears the kind of fruit that he loves to see and he will bring it out of us when the time is right. Can't you see that, that the, the abundance of life that's in being with God before we begin to do anything? I was thinking about Paul Simon's Bridge Over Troubled Water that I mentioned at the start, that idea of devotion. I'll take your part when darkness comes and pain is all around. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. It's very gospelly, isn't it? It's very gospelly. But Jesus, by the examples of giving to the poor in prayer, actually offers a warning to us who want to lay ourselves down. To us who want to be righteous so that we might be seen by others. To us who might only be able to justify our relationship with God by doing things for him, rather than being with him. That's not God's gospel of grace. God's gospel of grace is that we might be with him. That we might be who he made us to be. And that we might be like his son, Jesus. It's only being, sorry, it's only out of being with him who took our part when darkness came. He suffered pain, laid himself down that we might cross the great divide that once separated us from God.
It's only being with Jesus that we do 